I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary film, Victim Suspect. Was there a point like with the investigation where you felt like the police just, you knew they weren't believing you and... The detective told me he didn't hold you down, that's not rape. Today, we're talking to director Nancy Schwartzman and journalist Rachel DeLeon. An investigative reporter discovered a nationwide pattern of women who'd come forward to report a sexual assault only to be arrested for filing a false report. But the victims said they recanted because police said they didn't believe them. Many were wrongly charged with their own crime, publicly humiliated and even sent to prison. Ray DeLeon learned police were employing the same deceptive techniques used in criminal interrogations, even withholding evidence to break a woman's story and turn a true victim into a suspect. The Netflix documentary Victim Suspect follows DeLeon as she probes what happens when assault survivors seeking justice are punished because investigators don't believe them. The film also recounts the case of several victims who've lived with the personal and public pain of false recantations. We have to charge you with filing a false police report. You wasted so many people's time and everything. So that's why we have to charge you. I'm joined now by director Nancy Schwartzman and journalist Ray DeLeon. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you. Hello. Thank you so much. So Victim Suspect is an important investigation, but it's also a documentary about journalism. Nancy, tell us how the idea of doing a behind-the-scenes investigation of an investigation came about. Yeah, I like that framing um, behind the scenes of an investigation. Um, Well, it was just clear that we had, you know, Ray had done such tremendous reporting. We had a few different stories that were really coming to the surface. And, you know, what I really wanted to do was to really be able to prioritize the police footage as much as possible. But that can't really play as a character, right? It's like, well, we can't have this back of someone's head during a police interrogation play as a driving force, right? And of course, we wanted um, the victim survivors to really have space in the film to share their stories, but they weren't going to lead us through. So um, Ray was the connective point and the connective tissue between all of the elements. You know, we were sort of guided to that after a few different variations on how the film could look to have Ray, and luckily she said yes, but Ray be um, the person who leads us through the whole story. And I will share as a filmmaker, I know what it's like to have doors slammed in your face and have people say no. And it was like watching Ray go through that. I had a little bit of distance and I just got to document it instead of personally experience it as a filmmaker. So there was a little bit of... um, really kind of like leaning into that part of her process, all the door knocking and all the, um, all of that was really, was really fun and very relatable as a documentary filmmaker. 
Now, Ray, we saw actually in the documentary that you started in TV news when you were very young. And I think that this documentary could have been a much more traditional one where, you know, you're just like the talking head sitting and like we don't actually see you doing your work, but we do. Um, I have to ask, though, you did a lot of just like typing and making phone calls in front of the camera. Well, what was it like having your process just be so exposed all the time with cameras around you? Well, that was that was definitely new. Um I, yeah, my background is in, it w- was originally going to be broadcast journalism, and then I switched to investigative, and then I went to documentary. So path was like kind of linear, like I still ended up in video, but was definitely much more used to being behind the scenes, <laughs> not in front of the camera. Um, so it was new, and I was very like, at first I was very like aware of it, but as they always say, you end up forgetting at some point that you have a mic on and that you're being recorded. And so, yeah, I had little moments of, oh shit, <laughs> <We're> recording <laughs> when I said that, um, <laughs> but otherwise it was fine. So when you're in the field, you've got essentially two news crews. I mean, it's, it kind of works that way. Like a Russian nesting doll of journalists is kind of going on. Were there ground rules about how you would work together as Ray, you were doing your news gathering and Nancy, you were doing your news gathering on her news gathering? Did you guys talk about that? Oh, for sure. Everything was was really organized. I think I think we did have at the beginning, I remember, um, I'm sure Ray has memories of this too. We loved, you know, Ray debriefing with Amanda, her editor. How are you doing? How are you holding up? Um, I'm doing okay. I mean, I can't even imagine like the the case, just the, the small amount that you've shared from the case files is enough yeah. to really stick with you. Yeah, it's just hard to know, I guess, if this is really going to make a difference. Um, yeah. But generally, we collaborated on the questions being asked of the various, um, whether it was sources or law enforcement, and kind of gamed out together what it is we are trying to get from this particular law enforcement officer, you know, in that kind of scenario. And I would step back and let Ray do whatever investigative visual work she wanted to do. And we would just try not to interfere. I'm sure we interfered a lot, but but really try to like give that space so that her you know, trajectory was as natural as possible. So I want to get into the nuts and bolts of your investigation itself. So Ray, can you remind us how you developed the idea uh, to pursue this story? Like, where did it all start for you? Yeah, it was uh, just a few months after Me Too had like taken over Twitter. Um, And so like many journalists thinking about how to cover this in a nuanced way. And so I saw that this young woman in Connecticut was being charged. And I thought, well, this is like not something you hear about very often. And how strange, you know, she was looking at spending years in prison. This all just felt so like bizarre. And I wondered, well, who is covering this? Who is doing work around this? And of course, there's the story from 2015 that won the Pulitzer, which is called An Unbelievable Story of Rape. And Netflix did the scripted series called Unbelievable. He brought a blindfold, but nothing to tie her with. Would a shoelace even hold her? You think Marie made up the attack? I'm pretty positive that it happened. Pretty positive or positive? They just kept asking me the same question. How come your story doesn't add up? I wanted to go home. I don't have a victim here. It's bogus. She made it up. 
you know, I knew about that and I thought, okay, well, that's a good start. You know, there's that out there. And that really did, you know, open the door for us to talk about, hey, maybe police don't actually always get this right. Or do they even, you know, how often do they get this right? So yeah, I started asking around. It really seemed like no one was like following it continuously. Like there was that one story and that was amazing and really important, but no one was just like following up with people. So it kind of felt like every attorney I called, you know, representing a client going through this, they're like, yeah, I I haven't talked to anybody about this. Like I wasn't sure, you know, like who to call. So yeah, just sort of happened that I, there was a gap in that, it seemed. Yeah, I would actually recommend everybody listening to this, read that story and watch Unbelievable if you haven't seen it. Both are extraordinary, both pieces. Um, So for the documentary, there seems to be an awful lot riding on this pitch meeting where you go in and, you know, speak to the editorial team about what you're hoping to do. Um, And I'm wondering, Nancy, where were you in this process? Like, when did you come into it? And, you know, did you have a plan for if the pitch meeting didn't go well? I mean, did, did you did you know how it was going to go? I'm just I'm curious about that. So Ray and I met when Ray had done extensive research, um, had already made contact with a few sources and victims, I think had had a little bit of pushback in one smaller pitch meeting. Um, it was sort of, well, these girls pled guilty. Amanda mentions that in the film, right? So other people in the newsroom were like, I don't know. And, and it's been done before, right? There's this idea that, well, you know, Netflix did it. So to our point, it was like, yeah, but that's one perpetrator. We're looking at this going on in multiple police departments across the country. So the second pitch meeting, I I had been on board for a while. We had already shot some stuff with um, Megan Rondini's family. We had gone to Tuscaloosa. We had shot with Emma. We really had an understanding of that police footage and how Megan was treated in comparison to TJ Bunn. And it just felt like these are some smoking guns to bring into this pitch meeting. And if we play this tape, like it's going to stop them in their tracks, which is sort of what happened in that meeting. Yeah. That tape was extraordinary, by the way. It was that police tape. And, you know, Ray, you were so vulnerable in that pitch meeting talking about Megan's story. It, it, later on, Megan learns that they did pursue charges against her for theft, not for false reporting. And so she moves back home and tries to move on with her life and go to school. But uh, sadly, Megan ends up taking her own life. Um, sorry. I'll tell you, it is hard when editors say, but what is the bigger story here? But is this systemic? And I was really bowled over by the resources the Center for Investigative Reporting was willing to put in this story before they knew uh, it was being greenlit. Is that typical? It can be. I will say, like, if you are, you know, persistent enough and you have a manager who is willing to, like, let you, you know, take a weekend here, take a few days here and there. Um, Like I would tack trips on to other trips. Like I was working on other stories and I was like, oh, I'm in New York anyway. I'll just like pop up to New Hampshire and meet Emma or. Pull some string as they say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We did it in a very economical way. So, and we did like, this is like a strategy that Amanda has and it's kind of boring. But anyway, you like file for your own grants. You're like, okay, I'm just going to get a little grant here, a little grant there and just like make it work. And we made it work so that I was just able to at least go meet people in person. Mm -hmm. So 
that was what, that was everything. That was the biggest cost for us and my time, you know, but um, we weren't really paying for any crews to go with me really, yeah. like yeah. maybe a PA. Um, but I, I will say it's not, no, we don't, we're not able to put in a lot of resources before we, we green light something. Um, yeah. So that, that is unusual. No, I, I relate. I hard relate to that. And you do admit that you hate the time-worn technique of, of the door knock or the door stepping, some reporters call it. Are you ever going to get used to that? I don't think I would ever. I don't think I'll ever get used to it uh, because it is, you know, you're you're invading someone's like privacy a little bit by just like knocking on their door. Some people, like I say in the film, I don't feel bad for it at all because of their position. They're a public figure. Um, there's someone who's owed an answer and maybe they're literally not here anymore to ask it, ask the question. Um, and I feel very empowered by that, by doing that. But sometimes, you know, I'm thinking, oh, okay, this person's like in the middle of their work day, or maybe they, I don't know, maybe they're, they've got a nephew visiting. You just never know like what you're interrupting. And so I, I try to be as, you know, considerate and conscientious as possible. Nancy, were there times where your crew was off doing interviews or covering events that Ray wasn't a part of? I don't think so. Um, I think Ray really wanted to, um, as the first point of contact with all of the victim survivors in the film, which Ray wanted to be in the room or adjacent, you know, nearby while I was interviewing them. I think that worked really well, like Ray feeling connected, having a monitor, you know, but really I was in a, we used the eye direct. So it was like eye contact with person in the chair. So I was in the eye direct with them and we kept a really small set, but Ray was always close by and nearby. Um, I will say a funny story about the Detective Cotto interview where Ray actually conducted that interview and I sat behind a wall of file cabinets. He initially told us we had 30 minutes with him. Hmm. So we scrambled in, we set up, we had two cameras and that was done fast. Our DP was sitting on a file cabinet for three and a half hours conducting that interview. <laughs> and she was like, I knew it. I knew when he said 30 minutes, it was going to be longer. I'm like, well, good. I'm glad. But really the whole team was there crammed behind nooks and crannies because we thought we were in and out. I mean, I don't even think we got to bring in all of our equipment. Yeah, I have questions about Kato that I will be asking you in a minute. Okay, so I do want to get back to the story that you're telling in the doc. Um, you begin with Emma's story. And how quickly it spirals from her reporting a crime to her being charged with one. Can you talk a little bit about interviewing Emma, what that was like? Because it's incredibly emotional on film. Oh, I'm so glad. Um, Emma's incredible. She's really brave. Um, Ray had already built a relationship with her. This was a much bigger deal saying, you know what? This is going to be a Netflix documentary. Um, I remember the first interview location was this beautiful kind of barn that had this beautiful land with it. And I took her outside. We went outside. I could see before she was in the chair, the eye direct is set up. We're doing that whole production thing, twiddling with the lights and making sure the sound is perfect. And I could see on her face that she was really about to, something was happening. And I said, do you want to go outside for a minute? And we went outside and she just burst into tears and she had this like big emotional release. And it was really like, are you ready to do this? Really painting with her. She's so strong. And she knew that sharing her story was going to help other people. And sharing her story was going to be the way that she reclaimed her story, you know? Mm -hmm. And then she spoke and it was so powerful. I'm like, I haven't slept in four days. My, my brain isn't functioning. I am not lying. 
So that's kind of her thing is just like allowing everyone to have whatever emotions are coming up um, and then really holding space for them to speak their truth in their own language. You know, Ray, I've always said that cops never ask a cashier to prove that there was actually a robbery in the store, right? And it never fails to amaze me at how many questions a woman who's reporting a sexual assault gets asked to prove or to like convince them that the assault happened. There always seems to be an air of suspicion about this particular crime. Did you, I mean, did every interview you watched include that element of suspicion? Well, yes, because the ones that I was watching resulted in these charges. Yeah. But I will say, so what was what was great and what that we did in the film, which I've never had the opportunity to do, was uh, you know, you see the training, like kind of the mock interview that Carl hosts uh, or helps facilitate. And that's where you're seeing like, okay, like this is how something could look a little different. Even that you know, person who was training, he needed some feedback on different things. And, but, um, so I have watched good interviews that did not victim blame. That was very open-ended questions, like focused on how that person was feeling and thinking and experiencing the assault. Um, but yeah, all of the recordings and, you know, tapes I was watching at some point, there is like doubt you hear it, you know, in their voice. Um, and that's because I'm coming into it sometimes in the middle where it's like, okay, they've already found or heard something that makes them suspicious. And now they are following up on that. Yes. I, I definitely heard a lot Hmm. in police recordings. Yeah. I mean, there does seem to be sort of a spectrum with these victims, Ray. I mean, one constant that there seems to be in some of these cases is that, um, the victims are told that there's video that contradicts their story And, you know, in most cases there isn't or there's video that supports their story. The victims, did they all tell you what they were thinking when they when that resolve started to 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 melt, when when they started to actually doubt their own stories and their own memories? I mean, not all of them doubted their own stories and own memories, I don't think. But like that Mm -hmm. feeling of just like, wait, you know, was was there any of that Mm -hmm. self-doubt in there with those interrogations? Oh, absolutely. There is a lot of like, I I mean, to begin with your, if you're, you know, going through something traumatizing um, to begin with, it's already like hard to trust yourself sometimes and what you remember. And it's very easy to make someone second guess themselves um, because sometimes it's hard for you to remember, you know, God, like how long did something go on for and what happened first, second or third? These are just very difficult things to recall when you've gone through something really, really difficult versus like how I got to the grocery store and I came back if it was a normal trip to the grocery store. So yeah, when I talked to some of these uh, alleged victims, I heard them say, you know, yeah, they brought up this evidence and I'll never forget Diane when she first told me, she's like, I really thought I was losing my mind. Like this was in October, 2020, the pandemic was really hitting us all really hard. And she was just dealing with, you know, normal college stuff, but just very like confused about this video. And she's like, I mean, I guess if you say (laughs) no one was behind me, like, why would I doubt you? And I'll just never forget her telling me that she just like thought that she was, you know, misremembering and just believed them. Hmm. 
I mean, Nancy, some of these interviews, I, I was watching the interview with Emma and Detective Ackridge. I mean, it's obviously I have some confirmation bias having watched a documentary, but it seems like the confirmation bias for him is already there, that he walks into the room with the decision made. I'm going to tell you from, from the investigation, you're not being honest with me, okay? With what I just told you? Yes. I do not believe you. I do not believe you at all. And I think you're one of those people that's taken away from my true victims. I, I don't know if that's what you feel like as the filmmaker when you're watching these police tapes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was so layered, but it was all layered because he'd already spoken with her once before, right? So he's calling her back in. So it's never good when they're calling you back in. And so it's all from the top of, we listened to your report, we saw what you said and there are inconsistencies. I mean, that's how he starts it is with this idea of inconsistencies and then it just totally unravels. Absolutely. You're just watching. He, he's trying any tactic he can, right? There's this idea, oh, you were drinking. Like it felt really important to me to include that little segment about how law enforcement will take something that's just not a, not connected to the rape, that this is an underage girl who had a couple glasses of beer and watching how they both shrink when they have to say, yes, I had a drink or trying to remember how much is also a tactic to put them sort of on their back foot. And Carl Hirschman also backs it up by saying, oh, you just say, oh, you were underage drinking. And that's already enough to indicate to a young person that they might get in trouble or that they've mm -hmm. already done something wrong. So certainly watching that tape um, of the Emma interview, uh, you could see all the ways he was just sort of tearing tearing down her story and tearing down, did she fight back hard enough? Like all, all of that sort of commentary. That like drinking and all these other things that come with, you know, s certain kinds of assaults, it's, it's all a part of why reporting something like this is so complicated because you're coming with a full life behind you. And sometimes you're not sure like, oh God, if I, if I say that, do it, does that mean I have to tell my mom that? And then well, my mom end up re reading the report and what are my friends and family going to find out? So a lot of times I think people come to the police and they're just feeling like they can't tell the full and complete story, um, which is very understandable. And yeah, drinking and, you know, certain kinds of drug use come, come into that. And it just, it all plays into how, you know, police might perceive someone as being deceptive, but they're actually just like, trying to protect themselves. That's right. And speaking of deception, of course, it's legal for police to use deceptive tactics. And you did get one cop from a high profile case to talk to. We talked about him earlier. Bridgeport, Connecticut, Detective Cotto. He got Nikki Yovino to recant her rape story and then arrested her for it. He seemed very proud of being able um, to get the information he wanted by using what he called a ruse. I mean, he's talking about the read technique here, but he calls it a ruse. I am. I'm breaking down psychological barriers to the point where, you know, and you can use ruse, a ruse. You know, I give what you is that? a ruse is a tool that allows the AIDS law enforcement to get to the truth. Okay. So it, it's actually not being truthful to them. Oh, it's like a, what? Saying a lie. Getting him to sit with you and reveal that, talking to him face to face about that, Ray, what was that like? Fascinating. I learned so much from him. And like, I, I'm really grateful he talked to us. I'm really grateful he talked to us. Um, you know, he told me where he learned his training. I followed up and I got the DVD and I watched 
not all of it because it's really long, but some of it. I read the book that comes with it. And um, yeah, I was like, okay, this is fascinating. He learned this and I don't know how many others did, but uh, certainly others did. And, you know, he always, his thing is like, I'm going to get to the truth. I'm going to get to the truth. But based on the training that I watched in the book that I read from his trainer, it's really all about getting to the confession. Right. And that was so fascinating because he, he, he gets Nikki to a place where she reverse sort of reverses the story. But, you know, when you listen to it versus what you read in his report, it is not the same. So we're inundated with police, you know, appearing to do a very bad job. But it's refreshing to hear from a former detective like Carl Hirschman, who understands the problem um, from a very personal point of view. You both talk to people for a living. You understand the challenges of getting someone who's reluctant to talk to open up to you. Were you surprised when Carl was able to demonstrate how easy it can be to get a victim to recant their statement? Oh, to me, the way Carl did it was so perfect. You don't think I can, an 18-year-old can come up and I can talk her out of coming forward? Oh, I can. Uh, Oh, yeah, Kathy. Yeah, yeah, I read your case. Yeah, sorry this happened to you. Hey, look, um, I'm going to tell you right now, because you were making out with this guy or his friend before, uh, that's not going to look good. So in the DA, they're going to frown upon that you were drinking underage. Okay, thanks. Click, dang sign it off, hand it in. For me, I can remember what I was like as 18. And if we really think about the big picture of uh, young people getting into college, the first three months are the most dangerous. Um, You've left home for the first time. You're out and about. You're sort of trusting. You don't. It's really the numbers show that's the highest statistic of when a young person is going to be assaulted as those first three months of college. The way he showed us the tactics of, you know, either victim blaming via alcohol or pointing out you broke the law, or you did something wrong. Because if you understand how it works with sexual assault, victims always blame themselves. So now you're setting it up. Oh, you were drinking. You did something wrong. Oh, we saw you making out. We're going to not only blame you, but also uh, make you complicit in your own assault. I mean, that would make any teenager cave, any young person cave, anyone afraid of authority and really vulnerable. Again, remembering... Diane reported soon after. Emma was a few days after. Like, this is so... Nikki Ovino a few days after. This is all so raw for them. So, yeah, Carl demonstrating the tactics I thought was really helpful. Hmm. And they have no idea. I mean, it's already bad enough, you know, to be lied to if you're, like, a witness to something and may, or, or you know you're a suspect, you know, but, like, they're going in completely no idea. So they don't know... They have no idea that they're, you know, incriminating themselves. That's right. That's right. Uh, Ray, can you talk about the ways the system is designed to protect itself from accountability in cases like false recantations and wrongful arrests? Yeah. So I would use I would use Emma probably as an example, because um, in the film, you're you're seeing like the beginning part of her fighting back. And I'm so curious, you know, I'm staying in touch with her. We'll see how this goes. She was, I mean, her and her attorney, you know, claimed that they withheld evidence, that she had no knowledge that there was any, I mean, she had just never seen any surveillance footage. So then I get one piece and then I get another piece and I, you know, share it with her attorney. And yeah, he's like, I never saw this, you know, and and they should have sent it to us. So even with that, (laughs) you know, they appeal and uh, I, it just still felt like everything was stacked against them. Like I went, I went to the appeal 
heard about the update after and it was like in the film you see that the text card and it's I hope it sinks in enough for people what this means but the the judge is saying like you should have known to ask for evidence that would have been exculpatory that would have proved your innocence or whatever and it's like but how would I know what exists if you don't tell me what exists so that alone that that's an example right of like how this was set up again and again and I I did I tried to call the DA I mean you see me on the phone it's like I'm trying to get people to at least just revisit it right that's all I wanted was like hey look at this with me let's look at it together <laughs> and and I'm open-minded and I want to hear what you think but I just could not break that that wall So, Nancy, toward the end of the film, um, Carl invited Emma and Diane to speak at a training for investigators on how to not do what we saw cops doing in your documentary. They both said one thing they didn't want to hear from the people in the room was, I'm sorry. Um, They've moved past apologies. Was that what you thought they were going to say? Um, I love it. I love how... I mean, they both both of them and I think survivors do innately know what they need um, and they need action. They need to be believed and they need action. So I just I wasn't surprised, actually, because it's a room full of people who had nothing, nothing to do with their particular case. What these two young women wanted to see were people who have a position of power actually shifting their behavior, taking them seriously, listening and doing better and influencing their colleagues. So I love it. It's like, yeah, okay, be sorry, but like, let's move on and let's act. Do I want to go up a front all of these cops and tell them this? (laughs) No, not really. I don't want to hear I'm sorry. Yeah, that one. Like, I like, like, you didn't do this to me. I've had enough of I'm sorry. Like, pity cries for Emma. I don't, I, that's not... (laughs) That's not where I'm at. I just love how Emma says it. I'm done with pity parties for Emma. You know, I think they all want to see and their families want to see action and change. Um, So it's got to move beyond sorry. Hmm. I'm curious about the conversations in the room because you see the reactions of the detectives who are in that training. And in thinking about what drives the arrest of a reporting victim, it's not lost on me that all the officers we see in this documentary are men. And, you know, women, I'm sure this happens with women officers, too. I'm not saying it it never has. But, um, you know, women knows women know that there are risks of sexual violence and men are afraid of being falsely (laughs) accused of rape. And I'm sure that that drives some of that. Was that present in some of the conversations you heard in that room, that fear? Yeah, I, I do want to point out that in the initial cold open phone call, um, the the little girl who was threatened to be put in juvie, that was a female officer who did that to her. Yeah. So we, and in Ray's reporting, see female officers engaging in the same behavior because it's really just a, a broken system that engages in rape myths. And often women might try to fit in even more and really prove their chops. Um, in that room, in that training, it was a very kind of elevated group of law enforcement officers that were taking the time and their departments prioritize this kind of training. So it's already a bit of a self-selecting group. I saw some grumbles though, I will say. I had my eyes just roaming around the room. Most of law enforcement, you know, that we captured were really understanding what Carl was teaching. We're really, you know, hearing the young women when they spoke no one likes to be attacked, right? And no one likes to be told you're doing it wrong and all of you all are doing it wrong. So I think there might've been a little bit of defensiveness, but for the most part, people were there to learn, you know, and do better. And that's what we saw and captured. 
So, Ray, we're going to be listening to the podcast about your investigation from Reveal um, in this feed. What are our listeners going to hear? So you're going to hear a deep dive into one case, again, out of Connecticut. This time it's Canton, Connecticut. And it is a young woman who is a single mom um, working at a restaurant and who starts to feel really uncomfortable by her boss. Um, And one day it escalates to the point where she needs to go to the police. And just like these other people in the film, um, she's turned into a suspect and she has to fight to prove her innocence. So you're going to hear her story. I think it's really, really fascinating and one that has, you know, there's a hopeful ending. And yeah, and I'm so honored that she was a part of that. So, Ray, this has been a very long investigation. Of, we've heard they've been working on it for years. In journalism, there's this word impact that gets used all the time. What is your yardstick to measure the impact of a story like this? What are you watching for and thinking about right now? So at where I work at the Center for Investigative Reporting, we think a lot about impact, as you just said, and we think of it on like a micro and macro level, which I think is actually quite helpful. Um, So I will track even the littlest things, just someone coming up to me and saying like, wow, that really did change my mind about how I see this. Or, wow, I remember in my hometown, this story came out and I'm really like rethinking that. That's that's like very micro, but I think it's important because that actually can make real change. And then we have people who are actively like trying to actually like change something in their lives. So Emma, you know, like if something happens in her case that changes the status from guilty to something else, that will be incredible to witness. And um, yeah, so we're, we're following that very closely, of course. Then there are larger scale impacts, which, you know, that would be coming from a department like the Department of Justice. Um, this would maybe be a state by state legislature process. So I'm really doing everything I can with the team that we're working with on an impact campaign. Nancy, myself, um, and others are working with a lovely group who's focused on doing that. We're in it for the long haul. And I keep telling people, you know, that I have, because everybody wants to know, what are you going to do next? Not everybody. Some people have asked, what are you going to do next? I don't really have an answer other than the same thing, because I don't know that it's, that anything's changed. Right. Well, it's just not over. This is the beginning. And that's always what's so uh, wild about working on something for a really long time and then releasing it. You're like, oh, I can take a breath. But actually, this is where it all starts. It's going out to millions and millions of people all over the world. And we know this is a problem globally as well. We know it's a problem in England. I mean, it's a problem everywhere, but there have been some high profile cases outside of the U.S. So really, the release, even though it feels like an endpoint, is often just the beginning. Well, the documentary's victim suspect, Nancy Schwartzman and Ray DeLeon, thank you so much for joining me to talk about it. It is truly an extraordinary film. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Nancy Schwartzman and Ray DeLeon. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, TV, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. 
I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 